This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Let's talk about pot, marijuana, uh, because that's what city council has been talking about for the last little while. The federal government and the provincial government are dragging their heels and making promises about legalization and distribution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it looks like the cities, including Hamilton, are going to be left holding the bag vis-a-vis cost and enforcement and a whole lot of other things. But the laws haven't even been passed yet. And yet there are still some concerns about what's going on here in the city. And uh, we want to talk about the discussion that went on at a committee yesterday down in City Hall. Joining us to do that is Doug Conley, who is the counselor for Ward 9 out in Stony Creek here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Good morning, Doug. How are you doing today? Good morning. Doing great, Bill. How are you? Great. Listen, I want, to, I want to talk about a couple of the facets of the things you guys mentioned yesterday, but let's first and foremost talk about these, uh, well, I think I, I'm fair in saying illegal shops that are opening up right now and selling pot. And you've got one right downtown Stony Creek. Yeah. Yeah. Every, every uh, store is illegal in Hamilton. There's no legal stores for selling of uh, pot and marijuana. And I have one right Right at the corner of a of a a street that's got a lot of kids on it, and uh, traffic is just horrendous now because of the uh, store that's at the corner there. So, um, so I want to get it moved or get it closed. What have you done about it so far? What have you tried to do? I guess there's maybe the better question here, Doug. Well. Um, I know our licensing people have gone down there, but they don't have, they can't put a, a warrant against them. I, I put a motion through uh, last Wednesday's um, council meeting to um, as request the police to uh, put it a high priority because I know they've, they're very busy and they've got a lot of different uh, outlets, but I wanted a high priority only because of where it's located. If it was located in a industrial place or anywhere that there's not kids walking up and down the street all the time and and uh, it's not going to bother the people that live there, I would uh, I wouldn't be so concerned with it. I, I'm I'm a little perplexed, and I think a lot of people are based on what's happening in your particular neighborhood, Doug, but also in other parts of the city. Because, like you say, this isn't the only one that's that's uh, opening up shop right now. No. But but I've I've received feedback from some some listeners in Stony Creek and in other places too that are asking, I guess, the very basic question: If this stuff is illegal, still is illegal because there's no law passed yet to change it. Why don't you just shut these things down? This is an illegal operation, is it not? It is illegal operation, and the police go in, they shut it down for the day, then they open up the next day. And then the police have to go through their warrants and all the legal things again to shut it down um, until the courts uh, um, convict these people, which they're not. I think the, I think in general the courts are waiting for the federal government and provincial government to come out and make some rules so they they're kind of ignoring this situation and just making it bad for the police and for our licensing people. That it's a vicious circle with them now. They're trying hard to do what's right, but um, they need support from the courts. And they're not getting it right now because the courts, I guess, with the expectation that this stuff's going to get legalized, they're just kind of backing off, figuring, well, then everybody's going to, anybody who got charged or convicted of this thing, I guess, is just going to ask for for a, a reversal of that when and if this ever happens. But in the meantime, the city, meaning you guys and me and as taxpayers, we're, we're we're stuck with this. I mean, we're paying for the enforcement of this. We're 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 concerned about how this is having an impact on our neighborhoods. And I'm sure you're hearing from some of your constituents about this. Oh, I, I have. That's how it all started when uh, when the people on the corner uh, along the street uh, called me and says, "Doug, we got to get rid of this thing." There's, they're they're they were concerned about the traffic up and down the street is increased, that the speed of the people going on. And I actually sat uh, near the store for about forty five minutes to an hour, and there was at least forty, probably closer to fifty cars and motorcycles and pickup trucks that that pulled in, parked illegally in most cases, got out, did their thing, got in, and then took off again. It was a, a steady stream of, uh, of people coming in and out. Now, I, I know where this place is. I've driven past yep. it. Uh, but, yep. uh, 
and, and I've not been in it, uh, but my understanding is they sell paraphernalia in there, et cetera, but they're selling, they're selling marijuana, too. Absolutely. Recreational, parama- uh, uh, recreational marijuana, yeah. And, and that's what the big lineup is. I mean, this, these guys are doing fabulous business, I suppose, but the rea- reaction is, and I, I listen, I, I've made this point before, and I, I want to do it again for the sake of our listeners. I, I, I don't have anything against it. I don't use the stuff, never have, never will. Uh, and if it's going to be legalized, well, that's fine. That's something we're going to have to deal with, but it's going to have to be regulated. Right now, there is no regulation. My concern right now is not, hey, we got to get this marijuana thing out of here. It, what they're selling is an illegal substance. I don't care if it was shoelaces that were illegal. You can't sell something that's against the law, and that's what they're doing right now. And that's why I got support from the council, because it's illegal. You know, when it becomes illegal, there'll be a lot more control of where they can sell it and when and all the other regulations that come with it. But right now, it's like a wild west out there. So the police, I'm frustrated by this, because like you say, they could probably send an officer over there first thing every morning and shut it down. And like you well, say, the next morning, it's opening again. Uh, so these guys, are, these guys, these guys are just thumbing their nose at the law, though. Yeah, they got to get warrants and do all the legal things, and and then they can go in. And then if, uh, if they open up again, they got to get warrants again. So... <laughs> So every time they they raid the place, they got to get warrants, and that takes time. You don't get one in one day normally. It takes longer than that. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm hoping that the uh, in this case that the people that own the house will um, ask the uh, or break the lease or whatever they have to do to get these people out of there. So the people that are running the business are not the ones who own the house, then. Oh, they're leasing it. Have you talked to the owners of the house? I haven't, but apparently uh, our, our um, legal um, licensing department has. And uh, In fact, I talked to them yesterday, and they're going to go down and talk to the owners of the uh, of the home and see if we can... Uh... I've heard a rumor that they're going to break the lease. I've heard a rumor. I haven't heard anything that is official. So I'm trying to get it. Um, officialized, if you want to say that. Doug, there's another element to this, too, That, and I know we're talking about the urban part of Stony Creek, of course, that you represent, but yeah. I know that a couple of your colleagues, uh, Brenda Johnson and and, uh, and also Lloyd Ferguson, who represent rural areas of the city, uh, yeah. have some concerns about another aspect of this marijuana enterprise, and that, of course, is, is growing the stuff uh, yeah. and the concern about uh, where they may be setting up shop right now, using what I think Councillor Ferguson and Councillor Johnson talked about as, as prime farmland to grow pot instead of other things. Uh, and they asked staff about that. What kind of information did we get about that? Um, we have, um, they're allowed to build a building as like a, a greenhouse up to, I think it's 2,000 square meters. But now they want to put a, put ten thousand, twenty thousand square meter places on huge, huge places that um, that goes against our bylaw as far as the size. So we we are looking into it a lot more seriously now um, because of the ruling coming down from the government, and ho- hopefully we can save the agriculture area. I mean, it's it's prime land for growing food. And I think most people need food rather than marijuana, so I hope that uh, that we can put some uh, strict rules in there that uh, that they won't take over. You know, I'm not concerned about how much money or taxes we can make. I'm really concerned about saving what agriculture we have left. My understanding, uh, I'm just looking at some of the numbers here, uh, Stafford, just give me some of the stuff that's going on. I know you're familiar with these, but uh, uh, there have been 45 non-compliant zoning uh, notifications, 25 zoning charges yep. uh, before the courts right now, and that's just here in the city of Hamilton. Uh, yep. So this this has got to be frustrating for all of you guys there right now, and, and this seems to all come back, as I mentioned that when we began this conversation, Doug, that the fact that the province and, the, and the, the federal government, who are the ones who are basically in charge of this whole project and the, the legalization of and, and the marijuana industry, uh, they're taking their sweet time doing this. And in the meantime, you guys at the city, and every city, I guess, for that matter, is, is kind of up in the air because you don't know what to do, how to regulate it. You, you've got people that are basically saying, don't charge us because it's going to be legal real soon. We don't know when, so you sure. can't do this to us. I mean, your hands are tied here. Absolutely. Absolutely. We can just put pressure on the individual places that are, that are doing it, put pressure on the police to make certain um, 
dispensaries uh, uh, a higher priority than others because some of these we don't get any complaints from, and they're in places that aren't, you know, if they tried to put it in front of a, a school or something, it, it'd be a higher priority too. But uh, I think these people opening up, even now, should be very cautious of where they do it so they're not not being exposed to a lot of harassment from the police. It's not harassment, a lot of police enforcement that's going on. But they seem to just put them up anywhere they want. Well, and therein lies the problem. I mean, there have to be some rules and regulations, but in the absence of a law that legalizes it, you can't really have regulations, can you? That's right. It's a catch-22, really is. And we're talking about non-medical marijuana. Is this right, Doug? Well, it's mostly recreational that they're selling, but they can't even sell uh, medical marijuana in these stores. The only way you can get it is through uh, uh, the mail. You, they can, you can get it sent to your house, but you can't buy it at any dispensary in Hamilton legally. There are areas that are doing this. I mean, I, I know there's a, a medical marijuana operation up in Stainer, up near Collingwood, and I... I, I I'm sure I've driven past that like 20 or 30 times. I, I wouldn't know it if I saw it. I mean, it doesn't look any differently, but it was, it's was it been it's it's sanctioned because it's for medical use only, and, of course, they're growing it up there, and they're licensed properly, and it's a legitimate business. Uh, and I guess that's what we're looking for here is those sorts of regulations for what they're supposed to do here now. But uh, I, you can't do much here until the province decides whether or not they're going to sell this thing in the LCBO outlets, which is what the premier seemed to be hinting at then. If yep. that would have happened, Doug... And I'm yep. sure staff have given you some opinions on this. Does that mean that this, these sorts of shops that you're dealing with in Stony Creek now would be illegal and, and you could just shut them down because they would, by by a definition, I guess, be against that law? Yes, yes. That's my understanding that we could shut them down once, uh, once the province makes the rules of where they can go and where they can't. And I'm not sure if the LCBO is the only place that... It's going to sell it, you know. That's the assumption. But you know, even with the alcohol, you can buy it in uh, grocery stores, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera now, it's not just the LCB over the beer store. So they, they might expand it. I got no idea, you know, until the law comes through. And they're saying the, the summer, but I'll bet you it's uh, longer than that away. Seems to be that way. Have staff, uh, meaning your bylaw folks, have they been have they been monitoring exactly who is buying this stuff? I mean, the the, the speculation, of course, is that this is going to be only available to people nineteen years of age and over. Uh, and, and obviously, you're as you mentioned, you're in a location downtown Stony Creek there, where there were school kids that walked past there every day too. Is there a concern about the impact that it could have on kids? Well, absolutely. That's why I'm pushing it so fast, so so hard. It's not really. Um, what they're doing more than where it is, you know, is we, we don't, our kids are influenced by so many things these days and we should be putting, uh, pothouses and right in front of their face. And, uh, I don't know if they're showing ID. I don't know. Um, cause even if they do, it's against the law, no matter if you're 50 or if you're 15, you know, to, to buy this stuff. So, um, I, I don't know if they show identification. I don't know if the people that are selling it even care what the identification is. It's uh, it's an ongoing problem, and it's not unique to Stony Creek, but certainly it's uh, front and center with you with what's happening down there. Doug, good luck with this. I, we'll have to wait and see just how this rolls out in the next uh, couple of weeks, I suppose, and uh, we'd certainly love to see the province and the federal government move quickly on this. Appreciate the time today, Doug. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you... Uh, exposing it a little more than than it has been and see what we can do about it well we'll get we'll get talking about it that's for sure doug conley the uh, counselor for ward nine in uh, stony creek and and now i know that some of the downtown counselors are concerned about this too and i'm already getting emails saying oh you're, you're against pot no that's i don't use this stuff i don't care right i just want it to be done properly and that means legislated properly regulated properly and that is going to be the same as they do for alcohol consumption and many other things in our society, which means there has to be a set of rules about where these sorts of operations can be set up, how big they can be, who they sell their product to, et cetera, et cetera. And right now it's like a wild west out there because there are no regulations because there's no law. And these people are technically breaking the law. So I can understand how frustrated the counselors would be in a situation like that. 
You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, where do we begin when we start talking about what's going on uh, down on the waterfront uh, with the Waterfront Trust, with the uh, Sarkoa Restaurant? Uh, we've talked around the issue for quite some time. This has been going on for quite a while now, of course. And it, uh, I was going to say it culminated, but I don't think it's over yet, obviously. But it, uh, I guess the, the, the tipping point was uh, when the uh, Waterfront Trust, uh, I guess, canceled the lease. And the doors are now closed on Sarkoa, which, of course, is the restaurant. It used to be called the Discovery Center. You know where it is, down by uh, the Williams Coffee Shop down there, right? Uh, and I don't even know if I should be talking about Sarkoa in the past tense, because my understanding is that the uh, the co-owners would actually like to see this place open up again. Uh, they are, by the way, uh, Sam Destro and Marco Faeza, who are the co-owners. And uh, I remember talking with them uh, when the restaurant first opened, and there was a lot of anticipation and, and I think a lot of optimism about what could be happening down there. Uh, and it, it went south pretty quickly for a variety of reasons. And to try to get some uh, some context as to what's going on, we are pleased to welcome one of those co-owners, Sam Destro, to the Bill Keller Show here on CHML to try to get some clarity about some of these issues. Hi, Sam. How are you this morning? Good morning, Bill. How are you today? I'm great. Listen, I understand uh, before we begin, we should just maybe remind our listeners about this as well. There, There is a pending lawsuit here and there's some legalities here, so there's a lot of stuff that you can't say and, and probably don't feel comfortable saying. Uh, so, so you know, if, if we're going down that road and you have to stop, by all means say so, and we'll fully understand that. You don't want to put yourself in any legal predicament right now, right? That's correct. <clears throat> I'd like to thank you for giving me a forum to speak out. Uh, I'd like to thank the spectator as well for uh, keeping this story alive, because I think that the citizens of Hamilton, and as a taxpayer, I really want to know what's going, down, down, uh, what's going on down there. I have great concerns. And I'm glad to see that a spotlight has been uh, shed on this. Uh, Marco and I are two private individuals that took a chance on Hamilton. Uh, yesterday you had a show about the renaissance of Hamilton, how mm-hmm. people are investing in Hamilton. Uh, you, can't, you can't imagine how disappointed we are. Uh, we stuck our necks out. Uh, as far as I know, we're maybe one of the only ones that actually put private money down there. Well, Sam, and you and I had that discussion back in 2012 when you and, 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 and Marco you know, decided to, to take the plunge and do this, because let's face it, there were not, well, there were, to my understanding, very few, if any, takers besides you two guys. And, and just to give people a brief history, I mentioned that used to be the Marine Discovery Center. It was federal land, and that was a federal project. Uh, it was given to the city as part of a settlement, so the city took it over. And uh, all of a sudden, they started looking for tenants, and they said, yeah, we want to have a restaurant there. And uh, not too many people were kicking the tires, and, and you and, and Marco decided to do that. So maybe just if we can go back to those days, what was the discussion like with you and Marco to say, you know what, this is worth a shot? Because uh, you guys have already done some business here in Hamilton. Things are going pretty well for you. Uh, this was a bit of a gamble, but you guys decided to take that gamble. Absolutely. And, and there was no mistake in our intentions, uh, there's a, there was a restaurant already there, the Williams uh, Cafe. Yeah, they, they wanted something that would bring the people to the waterfront. And the whole idea was it, it was a, a patio-centric uh, uh, investment. Uh, we, we knew that, and, 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 and since uh, we, we complied with the bylaws and, and the, the uh, patio has basically been, a, the business from the patio has been like non-existent. We knew that the patio would drive the rest of the business. So our, our business plan was it was very simple. We wanted to, to bring a first-class entertainment and restaurant complex down there. We knew that it would be probably a five-year venture, uh, like five years of like trying to sort out what would work, what would not work. But we were confident, and the numbers support this, that if we had a lively, energetic patio, which we did, and we would attract a lot of people, then the offshoot of that would be uh, family uh, gatherings, uh, you know, anniversaries, weddings, and whatnot. And, uh, you know, it was my intention after five years to, uh, to take a full-time position down there and, and uh, with Marco and, and, and really turn that place around. And, and after three years, we were very successful in, in, getting to, in meeting that objective. And then, you know, we, we got all this... Uh, this uh, you know noise from these noise complaints and 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 uh, then we were just shocked that that the waterfront trust absolutely turned it back on us and uh, it, it made it seem like we we were like from another planet like like we didn't even know what was going on our, our mistake our intentions could not have been uh, uh, I'm sorry 
there couldn't have been no mistake of our intentions. Well, we, and you and I had that built- discussion back when you guys first opened. Remember, and I think you and I talked about places like Emma's Back Porch in Burlington and, and other restaurants. And, and, and the reason we keep coming back to the patio is because you said at that time, and I think I, I was agreeing because we were talking about some of these other uh, establishments in other cities, that the patio is the key. A patio on a waterfront on a summer's day or a summer's evening, that's the key. That's where the crowds are. That's what happens in Toronto's yeah. waterfront. That's what happened in Burlington's waterfront, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and Williams Coffee Pub, I know they've got a little side side there, but I mean, this this is this beautiful vista that you can see. And and I was excited about it. I know you guys certainly were, but I mean, more so because you you and Marco actually put and your I, money you put your money on the table and said, yeah, we think we can make this work. Let's look at this from a common sense perspective, right? Let's let's just look at this. If you were to walk down there and take a look at the development there, would you think of it that it would be anything other than a pat- patio centric business? It already, well, it already technically had a patio, and it was the Marine Discovery Center. You had that beautiful walkway there, and everybody was saying, about wow, that would be a great place. And we always said, this would be a fabulous place for a restaurant. And it was a great place, but there was an element in the north end that didn't want this. And, and what we're really upset about is that at no time were we made aware that there was such opposition. Like they, Werner, Plessel, and, and the rest of the board uh, should have known and communicated to us that uh, there was a fellow in that area named Herman Turkstra that would have been dead set against this. At no time were we aware of that. Uh, I just want to go back just a little bit further. You know, you talk about how the inception of, uh, inception of this. In July of 2012, I was made aware that there was an opportunity down there. And I just want to mention that, like, it's not like I'm, uh, like I'm an unknown figure then and now to the city of Hampton, the politicians and the mayors. I've always, I've had a good working relationship with the, the uh, councillors and the mayors for the past 25 years. Yep. And, 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 and Tom Jackson in particular. I, I went to school at McMaster and I met Tom in 1979. And I knew him and I've known him ever since. I knew him from his days at Second Cup. I used to, to, to go down there. And uh, when, when, uh, when I found out that he was a member of the... Uh, of the, the board, I, I approached Tom and I said, listen, Tom, you know... Uh, I'm you, you mean the Waterfront Trust, right, Sam? Sure, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I, you know, I, I, I called Tom and I said, listen, I, I know that there's a meeting, you're on the board. It was like, there's nothing illegal about it. I didn't pay him off. I just wanted to talk to him. I just want to get an understanding of the opportunity, right? And I said, Tom, you know, I'm really interested in doing this. And uh, so he came to my house. We had a, you know, a nice meeting in the backyard because we didn't want to go anywhere else. And, you know, we, we, uh, we talked about the opportunity at that time. I was, I was at like lukewarm about doing this, but, uh, the more I talked to him, the more excited about I, I got, because I really believed in Hampton. I'm Hampton born and raised. I'm a North Ender. I, I would, you know, I, I've, uh, I've been a successful businessman. So I felt like it was time for me to do something for the city. So, um, the night of, the uh, offer, the, the, the intent to lease, when we submitted it, and there was a meeting, uh, I believe that was uh, August the 16th is when we got our intent to lease signed. And, and our intent to lease was clearly, I mean, you couldn't mistake in the fact that entertainment was a big part of it. And I got a call then the night before on August the 15th, and uh, it was Tom, and uh, he said, you know, Sam, we, we want to make sure you're involved, right? I said, yes, Tom, I'm involved. And he says, you're committed to doing this? Like, we don't, we don't want anybody doing this and then walking away from it or taking a long time. I said, Tom, if me and my partner get it, we're going to do it. There's no question about it. And he goes, well, I'm relying on your word. And I said, absolutely. And I said, Tom, just, just so that you know, this is what we're doing. Like, everybody's on the, you know, yeah, yeah, everything's fine. You know what? And now it's almost as if everybody's forgotten. You know, on May the, uh, when, uh, on May the tw- I think it was May the 5th, 2012, I requested that we all get together. The board of uh, all the board members from the Waterfront Trust, their solicitor at that time, our solicitor, all the board members there. This is in their minutes. Uh, we gave them a vision statement. Clearly told them what we were going to do. Uh, they at that time there was a, the winter of 2012 was almost non-existent. Uh, we had uh, we had built uh, the, the, the up the patio. We had the stage almost completed. Uh, so everybody knew what we were doing. All right, that's uh, now listen. Started. I want to. I want to. I want to underscore that. Okay, sure. uh, you you told them that there was right. going to be music on the patio. 
Absolutely. That was part of your business plan. As Absolutely. a matter of fact, I, I, I had a discussion with John Best a couple of weeks ago, Sam. I don't know if you heard that segment on the program uh, from the Bay Observer. And John, he was there for the grand opening, I guess the ribbon cutting, the grand opening. And there's Councillor Jackson and a few other members of the trust. They're standing right beside the speakers. So I, I found speakers. it rather incongruous that some people were saying, well, we didn't really know he was going to do that. Of course you speakers, did. Uh, televisions, everything. Like, it, you know, and it's not like we were hiding things. Like, we... we uh, this vision for this kind of like a Miami-style development with music on the patio it was supported by the Hampton Waterfront Trust. You know, it, like I would have at any time, it. Sam. Did any time did somebody say you can't do that? It's against the bylaw. I never, never, ever, ever. Uh, we worked on a good faith basis and built this vision directly into our long-term agreement. We had a, we had a, included specifications for a long, uh, live entertainment, both inside and out. And it was clearly reported by, you know, CHML and the spectator, whatever. So if we had done something that they were, that they felt that violated the terms in the agreement, then why didn't they stop us the first week, the second week, the third week, the fourth week? We had a band. We paid for bands for two plus years every weekend, inside and out. And, 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 we and, have and at no that. time, the, at no time during those two at years, no did time. the Waterfront Trust say yeah, that's illegal? That's no. against your lease. This, it only started when the city started to clamp down in in the summer of 2015. That's when it started, and and basically at that time, and since that time, the the the, uh, the Waterfront Trust has taken this stance. It's a hundred percent your problem, not not our problem. But guess what, Bill? Uh, I don't think that they've. I think that they thought that we would just hide and go away. I will not stop. I, the only reason why I've come back onto this radio station and, 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 and given you my time today is to obviously to you know respect you for, for carrying on this, this narrative. But I just want to make sure that people understand that, that we have petitioned the courts, like we have filed papers in the courts. We, Marco and I, intend to, to live out the next 25 or 35 years of the lease. We're not going away. Uh, the, the Waterfront Trust made it very difficult for us to continue uh, operating the way it was. Virtually, we had no business. So now we're going back to court, and we're asking the courts to reinstate us, obviously with costs. We want the, uh, the original uh, terms and agree- of the agreement to be, to be, uh, to be obviously supported. And uh, until such time that the, the courts rule against us, we believe that we have status. And uh, nothing's going to change my mind. We're, we're going back. And, and my understanding is that the Waterfront Trust is uh, soliciting new, new tenants. I would caution anybody who wants to go in there uh, to, to listen to what I have to say. Sam, Sam based on what's gone on in the last couple of months, I don't know if anybody would want to go into business with these guys right now. I mean, the, I, I, you know, you you got to wonder just about the reputation. I got to ask you though, because you, uh, you you've talked about the beginnings here, and that's a key part of this. And I and I know that a lot of the stuff's going to get hashed out, I guess, in court at some point. But do you still have that agreement that was signed by you and I guess your 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 landlord, who is the Waterfront Trust? With that business plan, I mean, you talked about it with them. You talked about it with the board from the Waterfront Trust, uh, and I'm, at some point, somebody signed documentation, which I assume included that business plan too. Do you still have that information? Yes, we do. So it's there in black and white for anybody that wants to read it. Absolutely, and you know, we 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 relied on their representations. Uh, we paid rent way before uh, this lease was was uh, finalized. I mean, this is, you know, this, this is the disheartening part of this whole thing, that the lawyers will turn, will turn, you know, white into black, green into red. You know, at the end of the day, I know that we, we, we put our money where, where our mouths were. We, we invested in the city. We were proud. And now we, we feel, you know, it's so disheartening. This has been a tremendous blow to, to my partner and I financially, uh, you know, uh, we, we've uh, we've obviously been uh, our families have been affected. Uh, this has just been a, a crushing blow to us, uh, and, and we wanted to stop. And, and we want to we want to we want to go to court tomorrow. And, and, and what we, what we don't want to see is for this thing to 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 uh, you know be delayed for uh, for forever. Uh, we we want to go to court, and, and I, I will not rest. My partner and I will not rest 
until we get a verdict. And we've hired a, a real good firm out of Toronto. And after they, they reviewed everything, they felt that uh, based on what we provided them, that the Werner Plesser and, and should be included in our pleadings. They felt that uh, uh, we relied on these representations. And, uh, you know, at no time, I just want to make this very clear. Other than Tom Jackson and, uh, and, and Werner Plesser, that was 99.9% of our communications with, with, the, board, uh, with the board, and, and that's it. Like, uh, Werner Plesser was responsible for taking everything to, to, to the city, but we felt that we were dealing more with the federal government than we were with the, the city because uh, they, they were subtenants of – they were tenants, uh, we were subtenants, that there was a lease between the Waterfront Trust and the, and the federal government. And, you know, and, and that, that lease we were privy to, and, and, and the federal government said, yeah, it's okay, whatever they're doing. You know, one of the clauses in there is said that there, there should be, uh, you know, there, there's not, you shouldn't approve anything that would be a nuisance, right? And, hmm. and I guess, yeah. you know, the Waterford Trust didn't think we were a nuisance. Well, that's, that's that interpretation. But I, 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 but and again, some of these things, as, as we always have to say, uh, have to be proven in corporate. I mean, I wanted you to have your side of the story before this really got bad, and before they they closed the doors on this. Uh, you and I had a conversation, uh, however briefly, when they started. The city started to to concern uh, themselves about what was going on down there, and uh, you intimated at that time, Sam, that you thought that maybe there was something else going on at play here. And simply being that there's always this massive redevelopment plan for Pier 7 and 8 that the city's talked about. We all know that. And, 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 and putting that in context, there are some who feel as if uh, the city has something else in mind for that property that they're trying to force you out. Well, I, I believe that. But, I, you know, I, do I have proof? Do I have, uh, you know, that in writing somewhere? No, I don't. But the optics don't look good. Um, you know, it's, like I said, it's, it's very disappointing. Uh, we, were, we, we signed a 40-year lease. We wanted to be there for 40 years. Um, you want your and, restaurant you know, back? Well, yeah, and, and if and if they don't want us there, come on, guys. Like like we've asked, we've made so many efforts to to resolve this conflict. I guarantee you, they'll. I, I've been in business. I, I I'm self-employed. I guarantee you, if this this issue was between two private individuals, it would have been solved years ago. Okay, but I guess uh, you know, there's nobody that really has skin in the game, other than Marco and I. Like, if you take a look at the Waterfront Trust, uh, like nobody, other than maybe somebody might lose their job, nobody has lost a nickel over this. Nobody at the city of Hamilton would lo- lose a nickel over this. Nobody a- at the federal government would lose a nickel over this. Marco and I have lost a substantial amount of money. So if you take a look at what we invested and what we may lose compared to the financial cost of all those other parties, it- it's astounding how, how it's it- it's lopsided. So... Um, I, I think maybe they thought that we would go away. Uh, the, one, of the prime, one of the major reasons why I'm here is I want everyone to hear this loudly and clearly. City of Hampton, Hampton Waterfront Trust, Board of Directors, citizens of Hamilton, prospective uh, tenants, we're not going away. That- and we will have our day in court, and Marco and I will win. Sam Destro, uh, co-owner with uh, the, uh, well, right now, shut down Sarkoa Restaurant. But uh, you you got about 30 seconds, Sam. Go ahead. So for for an organization, and and over the last couple of uh, months, we found out they, they, uh, we always knew they were in financial difficulty. For them not to extend our lease and not to work for us, you got to wonder what's going on there. We had this, this deal with this Toronto firm that would have given us six months of rent, and, and there was no urgency on the waterfront uh, part to, to have this solved. So I, I hope that when they appear in, in, in front of counselors in a couple of weeks, that tough questions will be asked of them because it's going to get tougher on them, and we can't wait till we get to court. Yeah, a lot of people want some answers out of this. Sam, let's uh, you and I stay in touch as this uh, rolls out over the next couple of weeks. I do appreciate the time today. And Bill, I would appreciate if you keep this the subject alive, and because it, it's a v- major concern for the citizens of Hamilton, and there's you know there's a lot of money that's going to be wasted over the next few few months unnecessarily, and we want the citizens to know that if they're responsible, they they should pay a price. 
Sam Destro, thank, uh, once again, Sam, for this. We'll talk again soon. I appreciate this. Uh, obviously, he wants his restaurant back, and uh, they're going back to court if they can, unless there's a settlement outside. But he he, uh, he and his partner, Marco, want to open Sarkoa again. And, well, as we mentioned yesterday, uh, the Waterfront Trust was supposed to appear before council uh, this week. They've uh, asked for a, a two-week stay on that. So we'll see what happens when and if they finally get before them. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, yesterday, uh, I, I had a great panel discussion here about you know the wonderful things that were happening. Glenn Norton was here from Economic Development for the city. Uh, Graham Crawford, Laura Babcock in studio, of course. We talked about the, the, the way that Hamilton is starting to adopt uh, a new attitude, I think, uh, and bring new businesses in here and encouraging entrepreneurship. Uh, and that's all true, and it's all happening, and, and there are some good news and bad news stories related to that. But one of the areas of concern is is about millennials themselves and, the I guess, the employment situation with millennials. And you've, we've heard this anecdotally for the longest time right now where they said, yeah, you can get a good-paying job, but it's a contract position. Uh, it's not a quote-unquote full-time job, and uh, the contract could be for a year, two years, three years, whatever the case might be. Oftentimes it doesn't have benefits, and it's... It's a little disconcerting, I guess, for millennials and for a lot of other people that are faced with that situation right now. Well, the Hamilton Community Foundation partnered with a couple of other groups here and uh, funded a study about this and uh, came up with uh, some rather interesting numbers. Nine out of ten millennials in our city actually believe that the economic situation is getting more difficult for them in their generation compared to previous ones. Uh, Terry Cook is the CEO, of course, of the Hamilton Community Foundation, and he joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about that and the implications. Mr. Cook, sir, how are you today? Mr. Bill, I'm excellent. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Listen, this is something that, Terry, that that I think a lot of us had heard stories about anecdotally, uh, you know, a friend of a friend or somebody who just graduated from university, etc. Uh, precarious employment is, is becoming more than a catchphrase right now. It's becoming a bit of a problem for a lot of people. Without a doubt, and uh, just to provide some context, we had this research done by Jeff Martin, who you would well know, sure. just done a lot of very good work in this community, uh, supervised by Wayne Luchek, who's done some groundbreaking stuff about precarious work across the GTA and Hamilton. Uh, you would remember that last year on our annual Vital Signs report, the Community Foundation identified a surge in millennials coming here. We outstripped the province and, and most of the country in terms of the number of, of young people who have chosen Hamilton uh, to, to chart their, their future, and they've, they've made that decision with you know their their dollars and their footsteps and their their commitment around careers and and that's really a great thing because it's contributing to all of the energy that your panel touched on yet yesterday and all of the good things we we see happening in the community uh, the downside, uh, and there's good news and bad news in the work that uh, Jeff Martin has done. Uh, we have a very engaged cohort of millennials here. They're driving a lots of innovation and activity in the community, um, um, and that's all good. Um, the downside is, is, as you've said, uh, an overwhelming number of them, A, are struggling with breaking into what we would consider full-time permanent employment. They're, they're all <laughs> largely in precarious jobs that don't have benefits, don't have security, and often have really short notice periods for when they have to be in the workplace, which obviously curtails their ability to respond to either family or community commitments. And the second piece is the remarkable finding that nine out of ten in this this uh, group of, of millennials are convinced that, that uh, their lifestyle, their expectations, and their careers will be harder and less promising than our generation experienced. And, and I think that's something that should really make us worry, uh, partially because these folks inevitably will be forced to make choices, and if they can't find you know, good career prospects here, uh, inevitably we're going to lose talent that, that we're going to need here to have a brighter future. Now, this this is a Hamilton-centric study, and I'm glad that, that you guys were able to fund that because it gives us, I think, a more focused idea. But this is this is not a uniquely Hamilton problem, though. No, no, no. The, the, for sure the problem is not unique to Hamilton. I think what what is a little bit unique in Hamilton is is the fact that this is a very significant and higher than average proportion of our population and therefore its importance to our future I think perhaps outstrips some other 
similar size cities. And we're talking about 25 to 28 percent of our population are, are millennials. And when nine of Ten of those people say our prospects look less promising than our parents did. Uh, we need to pay attention to that. Well, absolutely, because I think you and I had this discussion years ago about the the opposite we were problem. A lot younger the, than Bill. Well, the, the polar opposite. You're darn right. We were a lot younger then. Uh, but the reality then was that those millennials were were, were they were going they were going someplace else. I mean, how many times uh, when you were in, in political life would you knock on somebody's door and they say, "Yeah, yeah, I went to school with you." Yeah, he moved up to Calgary, or no, they've gone to Chicago because that's where the jobs were. And the good news is the jobs are here now, but they're not the same kind of jobs. Uh, and and therein lies the problem. I mean, when you and I finished our our educations and we started to go into the and start this brave new world of ours. The expectation, I think, for a lot of people, Terry, was I'm going to get a job, uh, probably have the job for life, especially if it was going to be a manufacturing job. There'll be benefits. I'll have drug plans. I'll have dental plans. I can raise a family. I can buy a house. There's some consistency there with my income. They don't have that anymore. For sure. And, and uh, again, when you know, I look back, my career's 30-some-odd years in the making, uh, I had no doubt that I was going to do as well or better than my parents were going to do. Uh, but the reality at that time in Hamilton's history was that nine out of ten of my friends were leaving here to find opportunities elsewhere because there weren't good jobs being created. And that was the whole period, the early days of the decline that kind of kind of followed the Stelco strike of 81. And then we saw the branch plants start to go, free mm-hmm. trade, a whole bunch of other forces, globalization that uh, really erased opportunity for a whole generation. So again, to fast forward to the present tense, of course, we've had almost a decade of explosive growth, new investment, and really a magnet, especially around creative industries for folks to come to Hamilton because they can find you know, great housing at still an affordable rate, and and get a start in in careers and and family, um, and that's all well and good. But but again, what they're bumping up against is they're just not seeming to be able to crack into the kind of stable, permanent uh, workforce, and and that of course creates great. Uh, great stress uh, for individuals and families, and and overall a bit of a sense of foreboding about uh, the future is not looking any brighter than than uh, uh, all of the challenges that they're presently wrestling with. So I think for millennials, this is a this is clearly a, a wake up call, and for the rest of the community, um, it's a risk. And again, it's a risk because that's the talent we're going to need to stay here, be rooted, and. To, you know, make contributions, and and uh, frankly, folks are mobile today. Uh, they they will make other choices if we can't find a way to create meaningful employment at decent wages in this community. Well, there are going to be economic consequences, not just for those individuals, Terry, but for the, the broader community as well. I mean, mm-hmm. if if you're in one of those situations, as is described in this report here. Uh, you may not want to buy a house. You may want to buy a house, but you may not be able to. You may not qualify for a mortgage. The bank is going to look at you rather skeptically and say, you've only got a two-year contract here, Mr. Cook. I really don't see how we can give you a 25-year mortgage. Uh, and that's going to cause some problems and and give some people some second thoughts right now. So there's 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 a lot of spinoff concerns about this as, as well as the individual. But let's let's focus on the individual for a second. And those numbers that you talked about here about feeling less positive about their economic future, uh, it's actually to the point right now where a number of them, and I think sadly a, a large number of them, indicated in this report that they're actually suffering uh, senses of, of depression and, and frustration because of this. And uh, that in itself is going to have more some health implications. Yeah, there, there are two uh, parts of the report that I think are, are deeply troubling. One is an explosion in identified mental illness, stress-related concerns that are, are directly attributed by these individuals to the precariousness of their work situation. And I think, you know, we, we really need to, to turn our minds to that. The second piece that I think also is important is the extent to which uh, this highly engaged cohort of young people are saying that they would like to be more involved in community, but because they get very short notice and turnaround periods to be at work and they're uncertain about uh, schedules, that they inevitably have to withdraw from commitments to the broader community in areas like volunteering. And and again, that obviously has a hard-to-quantify, but I think important impact on the quality of life in, in Hamilton. And, and again, I think we have to we have to be concerned about that. And, and, 
you know, turn our minds to, so what can we do about it? Well, what are some solutions? What can we talk about here? I mean, we've outlined, and I think the report does a great job, Terry, of, of, of describing what the problem is and, and, and what the, the challenges are that the millennials are facing these days. But, but what, what can be done about this? I mean, it's, it's easy to shrug your shoulders and say, well, that's just the way employment is these days. They don't offer long-term employment anymore. Everybody's doing that now. Uh, that it, we can't be dismissive of it. We've got to try to find a way around it so that these people can can prosper and, and, and flourish with their careers. I mean, you know, this this is an exciting time of life. Hey, I, I've got my education. I got the degree. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trained in what I thought I wanted to do. I'm looking forward to going to work. And then you're hit with this, and it's like running into a brick wall. Yeah, and I, I think there are two fundamental areas that we need to actively pursue. One, one obviously speaks to regulatory environment, employment standards, and the things governments need to do to ensure that employers uh, are fair and meet their obligations to, to employees. And, and, and I think, uh, given the changing nature of the economy, that includes income support and transition support as jobs change. Because as you said, most of us, uh, increasingly, as we think about the long term, know that we're going to have multiple career changes in the course of, of uh of a lifetime, and and that's the reality, and that continuous learning is going to be a part of that, and the need to make transitions uh, constructively uh, to respond to employment opportunities and trends. Uh, the second piece, though, is I, I I still think in Hamilton, while we are seeing uh, you know fragments of light around entrepreneurial activity and startup culture, and there are some good examples of success here. We still lag behind other places in the country, and you know most immediately Kitchener Waterloo comes to mind, where there really is a a healthier and larger ecosystem to support entrepreneurs and inventors to to really turning ideas into to employment opportunities and companies that can grow and contribute in multiple ways to the community. Uh, you know, we still have a bit of the hangover from the days when we had a few large employers uh, that we relied upon to employ most of the young people that were graduating from high school and university, and clearly the future will require a whole lot more nimble economic supports to to a startup culture and and we've got a ways to go on that and i think we can learn from other jurisdictions like pittsburgh that have made that transition from you know a few large industrial employers to a, a very healthy ecosystem that supports uh small to mid-sized enterprises I, that's going to take federal and provincial help, though. I mean, I, I know because sure. you, you've talked at length about the Pittsburgh yep. situation. I know you visited there yep. often and talked to the former mayor there uh, that yep. was instrumental in a lot of that. But there was a lot of state and federal assistance to try to get that going. And I, I don't get the sense at this stage anyway that uh, that our senior levels of government are, are, are apt to do that. I mean, that has to be part of the discussion, though, doesn't it? For sure it does. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting conversations obviously happening right now in in municipal sectors uh, and uh, a conversation that crosses jurisdictions federally and provincially is the whole pursuit of major technology employers. And, of course, we've got a, a bid approach that Hamilton's pursuing right now. And, and one of the questions I often hear from millennials is, you know, you're coming up with half a million dollars to pursue a single employer from the United States, and that's all well and good. But you know, what if you took that money and carved it into to five thousand or ten thousand dollar increments and used it to support, you know, homegrown entrepreneurs who have technology or knowledge related businesses that that would would really see uh, the potential to contribute to economic growth here over the long term. And I think we we do really have to wrestle with what's the role of the federal and provincial governments in helping us nurture. Uh, startup opportunities that really could grow into Canadian leaders in in uh, in innovation and technology. And, oh, absolutely. And, you know, but you know, that, part of that, that broader discussion, if you uh, to to bring the feds and the province to the table, uh, it, it maybe has to do with some of the social safety net things that we've talked about. And I know this may make some libertarians cringe, but. Uh, you know, maybe we should be having a discussion about a national pharmacare problem. I mean, if if companies are reticent to say we're, that they're going to provide benefits and dental plans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because of the cost, maybe maybe that's something that we need to have a discussion about, like many other countries have done over the last fifteen years. 
For sure. Uh, again, looking at the inevitability of changes in career, the need for continuous upskilling and learning, and, and, and I think the willingness of workers to take chances on new opportunities as opposed to remaining in things that may be sunset industries. I mean, I think all of that has to inform public policy, and it's an area in which both federal and provincial employment support programs could could make a substantial contribution. I mean, it would make people a little more uh, portable, I guess, to be able to say, yeah, I can go from one job to another. I can find a better situation because I know that those things that I'm going to need, if the kids need braces, how am I going to pay for them? If, if, if there are programs in place like that, it makes that transition a lot easier for them. There's some stability there. Exactly. And, and I, I, again, I think we... You know, we we are always slow on the public policy side to really respond to changes that have been happening in our economy for quite some time, and I think this is an obvious area that that Canada needs to do some work. Well, and we've seen that with Scandinavia, and we, we see these surveys all the time about you know who are the happiest people in the world, and they're, and they're from those three countries essentially, and from the UK. Uh, where they have that that social safety net, and even the UK with the Margaret Thatchers and the David Camerons, et cetera, et cetera, uh, never touched that stuff because they said that's sacrosanct, and we need that for for economic stability. We need to have that discussion as well. Are we learning though, Terry? I mean, you you rub shoulders with some of the movers and shakers in in town here when you're talking with business leaders and political leaders about this. Are are we laying the groundwork like KW and other cities have done to to, to try to offer that support for millennials? So my view is Hamilton um, is is often slow to change, but once it understands the imperative to our future, it tends to gather momentum quickly. And again, we're a community that experienced 30 or 35 years of industrial decline and general economic malaise, followed by a decade of explosive growth. And I think we're just now coming to grips with we have this unbelievable opportunity presented by a large group of millennials who have come here to, to, to create a better future for themselves. And I think what we are just in the process of doing is figuring out what are the ways in which we can best support that talent to make sure, A, it stays here and has the best opportunity to contribute to the economic success of all of this community uh, and the community success. How patient are these millennials going to be? I mean, this, as you say, is a key part of our workforce going forward. We need these people, uh, and we have to make sure that they need us as a community as well. But if that if that support's not there, they are going to go looking someplace else. So is, is the yeah. sand running out of the hourglass here? Yeah, I think there's urgency, um, and and again, I would you know from my limited experience as an employer with with this generation, there is a certain level of impatience. There is a you know a, a transience and a global perspective that says if the opportunity isn't here, we'll move to where it is. On the other hand, I've also found that that in general, millennials are incredibly driven, focused, and if they they get a sense that you're committed to their future. Uh, that that there is no end to the the contributions they'll make back to your organization and to your community. So, um, I'm actually cautiously optimistic that uh, many of the folks who have chosen to come here will work with us to figure out how to create a better future. Well, this uh, report certainly got the conversation going, and that's the first step, isn't it, to try to find a, a way to try to solve this? Yeah, and and I think there are two parts of this. One is how do you genuinely engage the entire community in the major challenges or imperatives that we're facing? And then secondly, how do we put that into action? And, and we're certainly committed to doing that. And thankfully, we have lots of good partners in this community that are equally uh, uh, convinced that uh, some changes need to happen. Terry, great report. Thanks so much for uh, the work that uh, the Community Foundation and uh, and your partners have done on this. And thanks for the time today. I always appreciate it. Good to talk to you, Bill. Terry Cook, of course, the CEO for the Hamilton Community Foundation. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.